to the next episode of the In Development Podcast. My name is Ryan, and of course, this is the podcast for all of you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change towards people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infill Development and Edmonton Association, which is a nonprofit education and advocacy group that brings together like-minded people working to shape our city. On today's episode, we are joined by Tatai Ziola. She is a principal with Dialogue, and she joined in 2017 when her predecessor firm, New Studio, merged with Dialogue. Uh, and that is actually the year I met Ty. <laughs> Ty lends her expertise to a wide range of residential, institutional, and commercial project. Ty believes that we thrive best in collaborative networks and robust communities. Her definition of a successful project is when the ambitions of the design and the aspirations of the community are both realized. She is a strong advocate for the role of architecture and urban design in improving livability within our cities. She consistently continues with stakeholders, clients, members of the broader community in her role as project leader and facilitator. Ty's cooperative approach to design has earned her the respect of municipality authorities, client groups, and community advocates alike. She has contributed to her community by serving on numerous charities and municipal boards. She was a founding member of IDEA, the Infill Development Edmonton Association, actively engages in the industry and committee work. Ty frequently was invited to consult on zoning bylaw regulation changes due to her in-depth knowledge of city building regulatory framework. And she's been asked to participate on the city's Infill Action Collaborative, the Growth Market Intelligent Committee, and the Energy Transition Leadership Network, and the Emissions Neutral Building Steering Committee. On a side note, she didn't mention in her bio when I asked for it that she is also uh, one of Edmonton's top 40 under 40, which, what is happening? <laughs> how, how are we getting so lucky with that many people on the top under 40 list? Yeah, it's kind of like playing cards at this point. Like, we're collecting all of them. So <laughs> how many more do you think we can get for the rest of the year here? I don't know. I feel like we need to go through their list and just, like, pick people because clearly uh, those people are passionate about Edmonton. <laughs> it seems like we're doing that already, but maybe it's a good thing that a lot of these top 40 under 40 people um, are related to infill, yes? A hundred percent. I know it seems like we're just going through the list, but I honestly have never gone back and like checked all the people that have been a part of it. Uh, but maybe I will now. But also Ty got her master's in architecture from the University of, of British Columbia. Sorry, not Alberta. Back check me later, Ryan. <laughs> So a couple things that we have to define uh, before you get into this episode, uh, a few things. The first is industrial design. Um, industrial design is really cool. It's the design of almost everything from packaging, furniture, cars, signage, apps, pencils. You ever looked at a water bottle, Mariah, and wondered why it's shaped like that? An industrial designer is putting all that together. So Ty has a degree in industrial design. And um, yeah, I think it's a pretty cool uh, area of design that's kind of under or overlooked. There's actually a documentary uh, about industrial design on Netflix, and it is freaking amazing. It's called Abstract, and I've watched like all the episodes. So go check it out. You just blew my mind. I'm, I'm <laughs> going to look it up the second we're done here. Yeah, they do one on sneakers. It's really cool. Yeah, I know. It's, it's Sorry, you can't see Ryan's face while we're recording, but I can, and he's very excited. So let me get into the next definition. Uh, we talk about this competition called Strip Appeal that the U of A ran. Uh, it was about can you turn a neighborhood that's car-oriented uh, and aesthetically nondescript strip mall and reinvent it into a more human-centered uh, place. And so that's really cool that the university did that. There was over 100 entries. Uh, and they narrowed it down to the top three, but they didn't talk about what happened in the top three, what those projects look like. I just know that the one that won was called free zoning. So maybe all your zoning is free. That'd be freaking awesome. Into that. What uh, <laughs> year was this done, the competition? Uh, it was about 10 years ago. Yeah, I feel like we need to do another one. Yeah. I feel like we need a little bit of a refresh. This should definitely be the next thing that we do because uh, like we talk in the episode, there's a ton of these strip malls in every single neighborhood, really. 
um, that could use this. So I think I think that's really cool. Um, the last thing that we have to define is the broken window theory. Mariah says broken glass theory, but forgive her. It's actually broken window theory. Um, it's a metaphor for um, kind of disorder in a neighborhood. So the theory goes that if there's one uh, house that has a broken window in a neighborhood, uh, criminals feel more comfortable committing crimes or it already looks like crime is in the neighborhood. So it kind of uh, spurs more occurrences of crime. It comes, I think, from Septed or uh, police type people that uh, put these kind of theories together. But yeah, it's used a lot in uh, in urban planning. And fun fact, we actually do teach and talk about this a lot in our uh, builder education program. Yes, pardon me. I almost forgot what it was there. It's gone through a few name changes. Anyways, let's get into the rest of the episode. So our guest today, we're very excited about, we have Ty Ziola. She is a principal with dialogue in the architecture discipline. Ty, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, we have lots to talk about today, but I want to start off by um, just asking you, you have a, a background in industrial design, is that right? Yeah, so I did a, I did my undergrad in industrial design at the U of A um, many years ago now. I really enjoyed that. It was a great it's a great program because you get to play with materials, you get to build things, you get to play with uh, play with wood and plastic, and um, and I think you know thinking through the design process at a scale where it's very much about like interaction with individuals um, and you know how, how does a toothbrush feel in your hand and how does a sofa feel to sit on uh, that kind of scale. So then, how did you get from that into architecture? Um, that, that's interesting. So I, you know, my, my parents are both designers. My dad, uh, is an architect, uh, was an architect, retired now, um, following my, uh, industrial design degree. Um, I worked, uh, I worked in his firm for a couple of years and, uh, really enjoyed the, I guess the jump in scale to, to thinking about whole buildings. Um, and so I decided, uh, at that point to go do a master's, uh, in architecture at UBC. So I spent a few years, um, living the dream in Vancouver, <laughs> loving the, not loving the rain, but yeah, definitely loving the, the relationship to the city, like the, the urban walkability and being able to take transit everywhere and enjoying fresh flowers on the street and that kind of thing. Yeah, that, that actually leads very well into my next question. Um, you're going to school in like right on the coast at UBC. And then you came back to Edmonton. How come you came back? Unlikely decision, right? But um I mean, I think those of us who live in Edmonton know Edmonton is pretty great and it's like it's pretty accessible in a way that uh, that a lot of uh, other cities aren't. But I, uh, you know, family, family being here was was definitely a piece of it. But also, you know, there, there is um, there's an approachability about Edmonton. There's, there's a sense that, you know, you, you are you know, in a place like Vancouver, literally a, a drop in the ocean. And um, it, uh, it's hard to find an anchor and hard to feel like you're you're really making an impact and I, I think in a place like Edmonton um, in about 20 minutes in in the city you get connected somehow with all all the people who are interested in the same things as you and, and there's a real energy and a real uh, kind of a, a di dynamic sense that you are uh, able to make the kind of change that you want to see in in the city so it's it's a it's a fantastic place to practice surprised everyone doesn't just come to Edmonton but I think it's a well-kept secret too that is like the perfect transition into what I wanted to talk to you a little bit about today. Uh, you were a founding member of IDEA. Clearly, you found the right people that had the same passion and interest as you. What drew you into IDEA? How did you get connected? Good question. I, I think in in our practice at that time, um, you know, we, we saw a lot of a lot of challenges uh, in just moving the conversation forward about how to make how to make our communities more livable, how to how to really tap into that that demographic transition that was happening in the city and actually very like Edmonton is very interesting I, I've heard it's because um, because of kind of all the government budget cuts in the 90s that that a ton of people who were just graduating uh, from university say at that point um, and kind of coming of age at, at that moment decided to live not in Edmonton right so we had this huge, like outflux of, of people. And, and so we have this kind of, even to, to this day, we have this kind of demographic trough of people who are 
now in their later 40s uh, to mid 50s, let's say, because um, all these people kind of just got got outy in, in the mid 90s and are, you know, so we, we've had kind of the, the baby boomer generation and then like millennials, but the, there's there's not a lot in between. And I think, you know, most of our neighborhoods and, and a lot of our, our mature neighborhoods were built during uh, a time that they, they've kind of come of age now and people are moving through that demographic transition. So we, we had a lot of people kind of selling houses, um, you know, maybe moving at, towards the end of their lives into other living situations. Um, and the housing stock was in need of a refresh, right? Like, like through... Uh, a lot of a lot of neighborhoods. So I feel like that was kind of all happening at that same moment. A lot of people were really looking to like, how can we how can we prioritize like being a walkable community? How can we how can we have more cool things? Right. Like a lot of a lot of people are, are reasonably well traveled. Right. And would like go go to Europe or go to Japan and, and see, you know, kind of see what it's like to have the, this vibrant walkable community with fun places to eat and drink and and do stuff. Um, and then kind of coming back here and saying, well, what, you know, like what, what's happening? Um, I think also uh, simultaneously, like like the city itself, um, city of Edmonton was looking at, you know, infrastructure costs and just realizing that kind of, you know, chasing uh, revenues from urban sprawl going on and on and on is actually not setting us up uh, for a resilient, like affordable long-term city, right? Like it's, you know, I think that there's some stat out there, maybe you will look this up after the, after the show. Yeah, there's some stat about like, like the amount of roadway per capita and, and like, we're right up there, guys. You know, we, we have a lot to maintain. Uh, and I heard somewhere that we have to repave all of our roads about every eight years, like every road in the city has to be repaved every eight years. And, you know, like, I don't really want to pay for that. And I, th- I think the city's saying like, okay, if we, if we keep going like this, we can't. So we have to actually, you know, come back and reinvest. And, and so I think all of these things were happening at that same moment. And there was, um, yeah, th- there was just a need to have an organization to kind of advocate for that way of city building. Yeah, I think one of the great things that I wasn't around at the beginning of IDEA that you and the team did was you took an approach to bring people along in the conversation. You did a lot of policy work, but you also did a lot of like events and letting people like feel and touch what that change looked like. And I think it was, it was really impactful and made people feel comfortable. I like if they were able to go through the tours and things like that, see what it was actually going to be like. Well, yeah, I mean, people love going into other people's houses, right? Like we love the open house tours and stuff. So, um, but I, you know, we, we were really conscious at that time to always do, you know, like, like it, it wasn't the Alberta Ballet House Tour or like the, you know, the, the Hospital Foundation Big Houses Tour. Like, like we were really, really conscious to try to show a diversity of, um, of housing types that weren't necessarily that well known and, and that well that frequently built in Edmonton, right? So like we tried to do like courtyard housing, we tried to do garage suites, and we tried to do you know different kinds of multifamily and townhouses and um, something that isn't you know our, our typical Edmonton typologies at the time of like sort of shoebox condo or the two car front garage uh, kind of suburban house, right? Because there, there's so much diversity. Um, in terms of what's possible. And I, I think in those early days, it was certainly a, a struggle to try to even get our zoning bylaws, um, <laughs> you know, get, get conversations around how, how our bylaws could support different housing types outside of that. Yeah, now we're at a place where we're revamping the whole zoning bylaw to support all those housing types. Like, Yeah, the conversation has come a ways for sure. So when you and I went for coffee, we talked about a bunch of really interesting stuff. Uh, we got into a bit about demographic trends in Edmonton. Is there something that you think maybe the average person doesn't think about as neighborhoods grow and kind of expand in population and then life changes and that neighborhood changes? Well, yeah, you know, we, I, I think a little of, of what I, what I just touched on around, um, you know, that, that neighborhoods have a life cycle a little bit, right? Like, you know, when they were, most of our city, at least has been built in these waves of, you know, a new suburb kind of style and, and people who buy into new suburbs are typically like, 
at least through the 50s through 80s and, and beyond, like maybe starting a family. Um, so they, you know, ha have a bunch of kids and then there, there's a lot of pressure on the schools. And then over the course of the, the lifespan, like because everybody's kind of going into the neighborhood at the same time, it tends to like wind down around the same time and then have this kind of demographic turnover at the same time. And so there's like, I, I think we see the neighborhoods as they are now. And, you know, when we see maybe we have conversations about increased density or, you know, like gas lot splitting and <laughs> new homes um, having potentially greater density, like we, we don't necessarily have it fresh in our minds, like that neighborhood at its peak, right? Um, you know, when it was a house full of teenagers and people were having like three or four kids and it was a very active um, neighborhood at that time. You know, I, I've heard even, um, you know, from EPCOR, they, they have said that like we actually have in some of these mature neighborhoods that have like hit the end of their life cycle, we actually have problems like flushing the toilets enough and running enough water to like keep the infrastructure going as designed, right? So it's it's actually, you know, there, there's a lot of anxiety sometimes about like, well, what will the infrastructure take um, in, in this neighborhood? And, and it's actually, you know, in, in terms of like wastewater and stuff, it's actually not as, um, as dire. And we might actually need more people, like because household sizes, um, have changed and evolved over the years. Like people have fewer kids and, you know, maybe live in smaller households and stuff. So it's, yeah, it, it, I think it's important to be be responsive to those changes as they happen. You know, fire hydrants are a different story. Like we actually, <laughs> I think everyone has probably had a project killed by lack of a fire hydrant. Yeah. Uh, for anyone listening, if you haven't listened to the episode just previous with Cameron talking about fire hydrants, go check that episode out. He is saving about 80% of applicants a lot of money uh, so it's pretty fantastic. But going back into that demographic trends conversation, you touched on like, there's less people in the neighborhood, people are having less kids now. Uh, so even if people were moving back into those homes, we still don't have the population we need to make those neighborhoods as vibrant as they were. But they're also using more energy efficient appliances, are they not? Typically, yeah, absolutely, right? Like more water, more water efficient stuff. I mean, and yeah, of course, never going to tell anyone to like put that that high flow shower head back on, right? <laughs> to like save the sewer. But. Yeah, and I think that goes into a different type of trend uh, and something that you turned me on to. You read a book, uh, and I can't remember the name of the book, but it talked about Epoch A and Epoch B and how like mindsets are shifting. Yeah, yeah. So th this this book is like my favorite, uh, my favorite uh, piece of uh, of thinking in in a while. But uh, yeah, the book is um, it's actually from the seventies, but it, it's called Towards a New Reality, uh, and it, it's written by. Uh, Jonas Salk, who's the, the developer of the polio vaccine, and Jonathan Salk, his son. Um, and it was written in the 70s, but it just got like a, a, this beautiful new republish uh, a few years ago. Um, and yeah, I was lucky enough to hear Jonathan Salk talk about the book um, and, uh, and kind of introduce it. But you know, they were in the 70s, there was there was all this anxiety about the exploding population um, on that exponential curve. And, you know, they, they really felt at the time, like, are we, you know, are we facing a choice where, you know, are we just going to keep kind of developing like that until until we crash, right? Because that, that's what happens in nature if, if, you know, a population of something outstrips the resources available to it. Uh, or are we like as a as humanity, are we going to be able to transition towards something more sustainable where it, it actually instead of just the exponential up curve, it, it goes um, past an inflection point to kind of a, an S curve. Right. And, and levels out. Um, and I mean, now it, it very much looks it looks that way. Right. Like, you know, the U.N. is predicting like we're going to kind of max out at about 11 billion people on the planet. And, you know, we're. We're moving into this this other era um, where hopefully we can kind of soften um, th that transition and it's not like a crash to extinction. Um, but but the book really looks at like how does how does our mindset change uh, in those two scenarios, like past the inflection point? And, and he kind of makes the point that our our generation um, is really sitting right at that inflection point right now, and so we're. Kind of absorbing the disparity between those two worldviews. So, you know, rather than this idea of unlimited growth and, 
you know, the, the us versus them and the, the win-lose scenarios and, you know, the, the take, 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 you know, the, the future mindset, Epoch B, as he calls it, is, is much more about, um, like, I only win if you also win, right? So it's it's win-win, it's like growth within limits and, and within boundaries. It's, uh, it's an era of necessary uh, collaboration and cooperation as, as opposed to, yeah, competition and, and win-lose kind of thinking. Um, and, you know, within, so, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that within the realm of, well, urban growth, obviously, but also like the design process, right? Because there, there was, you know, in, in that, that previous uh, shiny era where, you know, the sky is the limit, it, there's very much this mentality that I, I think is a legacy we deal with in, in the design professions about, you know, the genius architect, the prime consultant who's, you know, like leader of, you know, ringleader of, of all the others. And they kind of give this, this design directive down to everyone else and, you know, invent something new that you know is is out of the the creative genius of, of their own mind exclusively right and and i think you know if we think about the new the new reality the new context that we're moving into it, it is much more collaborative and it, it, there's a way bigger imperative on engaging a diversity of viewpoints right so that it's it's not about that single source of power um, maybe the powerful developer who kind of tells the community what they have to do but but about distributed power, right? About like genuine engagement and saying, how, how can this project be a win for everyone who it touches? Like who, who can we bring to the table for, for that perspective who might see things not the way I see them and it might inform the project to be even, even better. Um, so that's, I, I think in terms of city building, in terms of, you know, being, being a consultant who, who works on, uh, works on projects in, in our city that, that have, real outcomes, right? You know, it, it, they can affect streetscapes, they can affect uh, our infrastructure, they can affect our, yeah, our, our costs and our, our sustainability going forward. Like the, there are real impacts of everything we do on on others. Uh, and, and it's probably time to tweak or, re, you know, reimagine completely our, our approach to those conversations. Yeah, I think that's why I got so excited about planning uh, in the development world is you literally impact everything about a person. Like, how healthy they are, how they enjoy spaces, how they meet people. Uh, and like, they have no idea that the way you've designed things, like the way you've designed the width of a sidewalk, or if there's a bench or not, or the door entrance has a huge impact on their life. Um, let's take it to the neighborhood level. Uh, you were on a project once, the CRC Strip Appeal Project, right? Yeah, so the, this is this is a long time ago too, and I, I don't know how we got to talking about this one the other day, but um, yeah, the City Region Study Center uh, at the the U of A um, did a competition, this just fantastic competition um, called Strip Appeal, where they they invited people um, internationally really to reimagine um, a strip mall and, and like what what does a strip mall uh, look like in the future? Um, so one of the first things our team did is we, we actually mapped all of the strip malls in Edmonton. And it, it turns out um, that there is a strip mall within a five to 10 minute walk of like pretty much every home in Edmonton, which is like mind blowing, right? Um, but part of it, part of it is that Edmonton is built in this incredibly modular way, right? Like the Noel Dant era, like self-contained neighborhood. It's about seven blocks by seven blocks. It's flanked by arterial roads all around. Um, at the heart of the neighborhood, there's usually, you know, a park, a school. It's probably, you know, it's very formulaic. It's probably like one and a half, you know, junior high schools because they'll do it every couple neighborhoods. Um, there's a community league usually, like which is just such a resource I think that Edmonton has, and we don't even realize how lucky we are to have this community league structure. It's it's quite unusual. Um, there there's sometimes a curling rink, right? There's the the hockey rink, like it, it's very um, very formulaic in its rollout. And there's a strip mall, like <laughs> everyone, right? And everyone's probably thinking of their own neighborhood, and they're like, oh yeah, uh, there is, yeah. So we kind of, in, in our design for this this competition, we thought about it as like, what if the strip mall was actually like a giant parkade and everyone could just leave their car, like everyone in the neighborhood just leaves their car at the strip mall. 
And at the same time, it could become like the transit hub for the neighborhood and have have some local, you know, retail in it, right? Which um, which starts to to point to like that that community vibrancy. But I think one of our, our biggest challenges in Edmonton is we're always in our cars, right? So if you're um, if, if you're kind of forcing people to like get out of their cars, they're very likely to, to be using that commercial. But, you know, the, the other thing it let us do is we said, well, then suddenly all of the all of the car infrastructure in that neighborhood doesn't have to be for cars anymore. Right. Like the roads could literally become parks and community gardens. Every garage could become a garage suite. People can you know, people are actually healthier because they're walking five or ten minutes uh, to get to get to their their parking. Um, and, and there's just simply going to be more neighborhood uh, interaction. Right. So. Um, and what I was thinking about since our conversation is that, like in a weird way, this might be even maybe even more relevant uh, sort of post-pandemic, right? Because I think one thing that's happened is with a lot of us working from home, we've been, we've just been in our neighborhoods more, right? And and suddenly like the amenities that we need are are very different in a neighborhood than they are. Like, you know, I, I used to eat lunch like downtown all the time because I was downtown every day. And and suddenly now we're like, well, you know, we want to go, we're, we're, we're both working from home. We'd like to go for a walk at lunch. Like, wouldn't it be great if there was like that, that you know, a good lunch spot suddenly in my neighborhood, right? And and so like, I, I wonder about maybe, you know, and, and this is back to the Epoch B idea, but, you know, if an increased kind of decentralization that happens from from the, the pandemic kind of hybrid working styles now, um, like does that actually foster more more stuff happening at the community level, right? Like it's not these sort of bedroom communities anymore, but people are there and, and engaged with their neighbors and engaged uh, kind of throughout the day and throughout the week. Um, I think there's a lot of like there's a lot of potential in that idea. I'm really curious to see, you know, what, like how does that change our neighborhoods and what what's the potential that's there? Because the strip malls are also like at a point, right? Like in their in their demographic transition. Uh, Ryan, I don't know how you feel, but uh, I was talking to my partner the other day and we were having like this moment. We live downtown and I have, I don't know, 500 eating establishments at my doorstep. <laughs> like it's an insane amount of options downtown. And you used to live downtown and you moved out to a beautiful neighborhood. But yeah, how did that transition go for you? Well, I'm going to take it even more macro than that. The first time I ever went to like New York City, I stayed at a hotel in Manhattan and I was like, all right, let's pick a place for dinner and open up your app. And it's like a billion options. <laughs> so it was, that was like a different scale of problems because they all have in between four and a half and five stars on thousands of reviews. And who really knows? Um, but anyways, yeah, leaving the downtown was very tough for me. Uh, I love the community I live in now. I live in McKernan. We have a little strip mall that has a great little restaurant, uh, and a daycare and a lot of empty space. So I think kind of the narrative around what, what you were talking about there, Ty, like uh, 10 or 15 years ago or whatever, when the infill conversation started, you're kind of trying to bring the community along with you, but now it feels like there's some capacity within each community to not, you know, you don't have to have the conversations about why lot splits are good. But communities actually want to get involved. We went, I went on a walking tour with my community league uh, not too long ago. And everybody's like got great ideas about like, you know, it'd be great to have this commercial strip mall be redeveloped like this. Or like, wouldn't this be a great spot for an apartment building or something? Um, but I don't think the community leagues even know how to get involved. So do you have any thoughts on, you know, how they can, you know, actually get some change happening in their community outside of these great ideas and engaging with folks like yourself? Oh, do I ever? I mean, the, and the, actually, Mariah and I talked about um, about this a bit too. But um, coming, yeah, coming out of that strip mall competition, we did a we did a presentation uh, to uh, a number of community leagues, uh, and actually, like along with us uh, on one of them um, was. Uh, this fellow from the Alberta Association of uh, Co-ops, Cooperatives, ACCA, anyway, and he um, he gave this amazing presentation about like investing in your own community, 
Uh, and he, so he gave an example actually of, uh, I believe it's the Sangudo meatpacking plant. Um, probably like over a decade ago now, the, I think the owners of it were looking at, at shutting it down. And, you know, it's a major employer in, in Sangudo. And so the, the employees were like, hell no, right? Um, how can we, how can we get involved? And so the, the ACCA actually assisted them in, creating a cooperative, like a co-op that they could all invest in to purchase the the plant and, and maintain their jobs. So they all kind of became owners. But the, the really cool part about what they did is they, they registered it as like a registered investment. So people uh, in that community could actually move their RSP money, like their RSP investments to, to become owners uh, of that um, with their RSP money without like pulling it out and, and all that. And he was also saying that, you know, in a typical, you know, Edmonton modular neighborhood in a year, there's something like $2 million that goes into RSPs just on average, right? Like people, people invest and like, isn't it kind of powerful to think about what could what could communities do if they were able to, you know, divert some of that, um, some of that investment money and actually invest in in their own projects or in their own communities? I, like, I, I think, um, again, you know, EPOC A, EPOC B stuff, like, we're very used to, like, waiting for a developer, right? Like, thinking that there's, there's going to be some dream developer who comes along and, builds exactly what we want to build but it, like it, it's very very interesting to me to think about like what happens if it becomes more of a distributed uh, and collaborative process in, in that sense like you, you don't have to you know like hey neighborhoods you don't have to fight with the developer anymore about like the zoning that like that they're trying to do like you can actually just say hey here's what our community needs and, and here's what we think would be a, a smash hit success here um and I've, I've heard about even you know communities who have, I, I think this one is in the Netherlands, so maybe not direct example, but they, you know, the community came together and like bought a building and renovated a building and, you know, leased out the commercial in it, but also kept one uh, commercial unit that they leased at like very, very reduced rates as kind of a, a little incubator. And they, they would take applications for, you know, people who wanted to do a little business startup. Um, but they were able to see to say, like, well, we need a good bike repair shop in our neighborhood. So let's, let's lease it, you know, the, the first couple of years to a bike repair shop, so they can kind of get entrenched in the community, get off the ground, like the community is richer for it, like their investment is is paying off. And then in a couple of years, that shop is established, and they were like, ready to move to one of the other um, commercial units. But, but it's quite, you know, it's quite powerful to think about what, like, what could we do if we kind of reframe our role as like, recipients of <laughs> design or development in, in communities to being actually initiators of and investors in, right? Um, and we, you know, so we, one, of, one of our projects where it's in construction right now is um, the urban green co-housing uh, development and like very similar story, super cool. I mean, uh, you know, and it's, it's, taken, it's taken these excellent people like decades to, to actually get to this point, but um, that also makes it really exciting, right? But they... Is basically, yeah, a group of 10 or so families uh, came together and said, like, here's the kind of building we want. Like, here's how we want to live. We want smaller personal units, more communal space so we can live, you know, have community dinners weekly and have a room for the teenagers to hang out and, you know, play music and have, you know, a little kid play space. And uh, we want it to be, you know, invested in and, and really sustainable from an energy performance standpoint. And we want it to be located in this walkable, you know, location. And they, like they just they got sick of waiting for some developer to take a bet that there was like exactly a market for that. And they so they just became their own developer. They pulled their money and bought four lots Um and, you know, hired an architect and, you know, and, and now now we're in construction. They built about 25 units so that they can start to expand that that dream to, to other people as well. And there's, you know, and they're, they're getting pretty close to, to fully sold out, as I understand it. But but so cool, right? Because they, they can they just sort of said, well, like, we can do this. right? So like and, and let, let's pony up with a bit of cash. And, you know, people, I, I think, have more resources than they than they think. Right. Like we're, we're used to thinking about these like money bags developers that that have all this money but really they're you know mo most developers are like financing their developments they're not just doing it out of pocket and 
you know, they're, they're just kind of thinking through the risk and, and, you know, building the development that, that they think will work there. Right. So like any, anyone can do that actually in, in collective scenarios or, or alone, really. I have two thoughts on that. First, I'm happy you brought up, up urban green co-housing. I was actually on the newsletter like 10 or so years ago because I was <laughs> passionate about it. I wanted to get involved. I think they're getting final occupancy, I heard, in either September or October of this year. So it's finally, yeah, so it's finally coming to a close. And for those of you out there, you know, I, I hear there's a few uh, three-bedroom units left. So have a look. Um, the second thing is, uh, I think you mentioned a, a, um, an example in Amsterdam, but it is actually happening here. I, I worked on a project uh, here in Edmonton where the neighbors uh, got together and actively fought the rezoning. The rezoning went through. They switched gears and then they worked with the developer on getting a community space in the development. So they, I don't know if they pulled their money and contributed, but they did pool their money and try to buy the land from the developer during the rezoning process. That didn't go anywhere, but no. they had, <laughs> no, that didn't end up going anywhere, but uh, I think it's starting to happen that that uh, communities, especially the organized ones, are starting to realize, hey, we have enough capital here to actually do something and, you know, fight something in some circumstances. But it ended up working out, I think. They uh, they got a community space, that same thing as what you were talking about. They they lease out for their AGMs or community events and that kind of thing at a reduced rate. So um, I definitely, definitely do think it's happening. Switching gears, designing uh, your passion, I know, at, at New Studio, um, before you moved on to dialogue and continuing with dialogue, a lot of your work is designing for people and their needs. So at New Studio, you, you guys worked on kind of everything. I know you did like LRT entrances and like a sports spotters box and also like Norquest College expansion. So lots of big projects, lots of small scale. But what, what's your kind of your typical approach when designing for different user groups? Yeah, I mean, good, good question. I would say the approach is not necessarily any different from, you know, new studio to, to now. But I, I think, you know, to, to me, it's really, it's really important to come into it with a, um, a large dose of, of humility and, and kind of willingness to, to listen and find out what people with different perspectives from you um, need, right? And I like, I, I actually love doing um, a diversity of work because I, I um, it, it's really fun for me to have to like educate myself about like what it is, you know, if, if I'm designing a dentist clinic, like I have to actually find out everything about, about being a dentist a little bit, right? Or, you know, moving on to, you know, working with different post-secondary groups and, you know, like you, you kind of have to find out the nuances of, of like being those people and, and their needs and that that process, yeah, frankly, like keep, keeps life really, really interesting. Like I'd never want to just develop, you know, j just design multifamily developments exclusively or, you know, because I, yeah, for me, for me, that that kind of listening and that engagement is is really fun. Um, so that that is a constant, uh, I would say. But yeah, through yeah through, through my work at both, I, I've I've enjoyed I guess being able to work at different scales, being able to think about like urban impact in different ways, and um, and then even just kind of community creation, right? Like what do what do people need to feel welcome? Like you know whether it's a, a student space uh, in a post secondary or it's um, yeah a space in a neighborhood. Like like what can what can we do to like find those moments to broaden the the list of invitees right broaden the the experience of, of different people yeah i like that grassroots approach for sure are you influenced by I, you mentioned mentioned some travel and you do a bunch of reading research like other than this grassroots uh, bottom up listen to the community approach how are you influenced I'm not sure I know, right? Um, yeah, I, I think like like travel is is very travel is obviously very inspiring and very interesting. I, I think um, you know what like one of the one of the interesting experiences uh, travel wise that I always carry with me is going uh, like spending a, a fair bit of time in Japan. And the the interesting thing is that like they have so much more density there, obviously, right? But flip side of that is that like every square inch of land is like so cared for and so invested in, right? Like every shopkeeper in the morning goes out and washes the sidewalk in front of their shop. And that that's like culturally a way of saying like, welcome, like, please come in. I'm making this like clean and nice for you, right? Um, you know, I, I feel like, yeah, like we, we 
could be washing our sidewalks here downtown, right? Like, I mean, even Vancouver, they pressure wash their sidewalks like weekly, right? Even though it rains all the time. But, um, you know, and, and you see, you know, the curbs are like all granite and the, the storm drains are like these beautiful cast bronze, like pieces of artwork. And like, yeah, your yard might be, um, you know, if you get a garden in, in your house in Tokyo, like, it, you know, it might be like a few meters by a few meters and that's it. But like, you know, th- like just think about the care that you can put into that space, right? If, if like that, so there's like no blade of grass out, out of place, right? And you, you have like this very curated kind of um, cared for uh, situation. But, you know, j- just thinking about like, like what, yeah, what, what if we all cared a little more? And what, what if we had the density to, actually make our dollars go farther, right? Because like, like you know, you think about like tax dollars per square meter of your city, for example, like how much farther can it go in a, in a really dense environment? And we're, so, we, you know, we're struggling to like cut our, cut our grass in the summer and stuff, right? So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think about weird things like that when I travel, but I, you know, I, I do also like to think about, well, how, like how does that care then translate into the, the things that we design for people, right? Like, um, how, how much care and effort and money and maintenance and stuff can they can they put into into everything and it's um, I, I think just just kind of encouraging people to think about it from that that perspective yeah it's that broken glass theory right if if space doesn't feel well taken care of and doesn't feel owned in some way or shape then it easily falls out of disrepair uh, and something I love about Edmonton is we have neighborhood renewal but Often, I think we think of the city or the community as to take care of the space instead of we all take care of the space. Yeah, the city, right? Like the city better get out here and like clear my street and the city better mow the lawn and, you know, but but like what what are we collectively building, right? And in, in, like, are, are we building something that like we as a group of people fundamentally have capacity to, to care for, whether that's through like paying the city to do it or, or just doing it? Yeah, and I would uh, happily volunteer for a program to pressure wash the downtown streets. So if anyone wants to start that, give me a call. (laughs) Well, and I mean, you know, in in Japan, they come out with these beautiful, like, cedar buckets. So I I don't know if we, like, even if we can't get cedar buckets, maybe, like, can, yeah, can the DBA afford a pressure washing truck that comes around every (laughs) couple of weeks or something? but especially post-COVID and at this time of year right like it's so gritty and you know I don't know that we actually think about that as an accessibility issue either right like we think about snow and like oh boy you better get your sidewalk down to the you know down to the concrete and clean and accessible but like yeah if you've got like an inch of sand and gravel on, on your sidewalks like that doesn't seem to bother us but it's like it's not great for strollers and bikes and stuff like that right yeah, the snow the snow clearing one is interesting. My wife and I we've been you know out with the stroller quite a bit lately, and uh, it's a tough time of year with all the windrows and individual homeowners not taking care of their sidewalk. And yeah, so we did what every uh, good citizen does, and we complained to our counselor. And, uh, that counselor <laughs> and that counselor told us uh, everything is working as intended. So uh, yeah, we're walking on the streets and in back alleys and everything, just trying to make it work. But yeah, it's I'm I'm curious to see because this is our first time going through it. I'm curious to see how it is, you know, not in the winter, in the summertime with like, you know, trees that have branches overgrown into into the sidewalks. And there's always just an obstruction, it seems. And you don't notice that until uh, you're walking around with a stroller or you have a mobility issue, I suppose. Right. Like, and, and this is where this kind of brings me back to like, like designing for or with people who've had different lived experience than you, right? Like you don't, you're not going to think of what that feels like, right? Like you're not going to know what a pain it is to get out of an LRT station with a stroller, right? Until you've done it and you, it like, it, it's a pain, right? And, and if those people aren't included in the design process and those, those people with that experience, right? Or, or people, you know, people in wheelchairs, people who use walkers, like, you know, and, and we, I think as designers, we can try our best to think of what that experience might be like but until you've really lived it like so, so that's where I like I, I think it's better to like ask those people if, if you can right get get some of those people at the table or to, to test test things or just hear like what you know what makes your life a pain in the ass and yeah, tell us. We'll we'll try and work and design with it. Um, something that we talked about in one of our last episodes with Morgan Kunitz, uh, her community and her neighborhood, they go out and put flower boxes out to beautify their streets. 
And it just like, I was like, yes, this is the best. I want all of us who have a passion for us to get involved in that because I went to Montreal last year and there was beautiful flowers everywhere and there was no uniformity to them. It was, and I'm like, this is a community thing for sure. If the city was in charge of this, they would all be daisies or they would all be whatever. (laughs) (laughs) They would pick two or three uh, flower types and that would be it. But I think when you empower the community, that's when the beautiful spaces really come out. Uh, And then they take care of it because they have a bit of control. And we need to like lessen our stress on who has control, I think. Yes. (laughs) Um, The evolution of Edmonton. You've been a part of the design community in Edmonton for over a decade now. Um, Are there projects that you love, that you've been a part of, that you've seen kind of grow and people take a hold of? I I think Edmonton has had this very engaged community, right? Where we, like, there's there's stuff we've all been really excited to see come together. Um, And and there's, you know, there's so, there are so many places with great potential for redevelopment. And, you know, I I feel like we're we're struggling a little bit, though, to find like, what do we focus on, right? Because there's like, the quarters has this great plan, and everybody's waiting for that to kind of come together. And like, Blatchford has this great plan. And then the city's like buying land up on Fort Road. And, you know, we're hoping that, you know, that whole area kind of gets redeveloped. And, you know, so there's, there's no shortage of like major projects, I think. Well, Griesbach is another example, right? Like, you know, and that one's kind of, I think at last coming together, but like, it's kind of a question of like, where, you know, where where do we want to focus? And and how can we, how can we get some of this stuff over, over the finish line with with some kind of critical mass? Um, I do really, really, really like to see it's actually like it's it's the small community things like it's the it's like the one little shop like you know like little brick in Riverdale or like like those those folks doing that um you know and the, the new building down there that they that they did like these little these little touches that like you know a community grows up around I think yeah in, in McCarran and Ryan like that that strip mall has had like this revitalization and, and you kind of look to see like how the community just rallies around around these things and how, how the whole city kind of rallies around these, these little moments that make such a big difference uh, in our lives. I really like seeing in the last, you know, decade plus, I guess, like, you know, a lot of farmers markets just like taking over the streets, um, you know, downtown and 124th Street and a lot of these places. And I, I like that those have I think kind of piqued people's interest and said, hey, like we, we can actually reimagine like the, the negotiation between like vehicle space and, and people space. Like and, and it's like it's really cool to sort of see that like, no, this this can be at least on certain days of the week or times of the year, like a, a space uh, for people to, to connect and, um, and kind of t- take over. Uh, so I, I would be really I'd be really eager to see us explore more of that. Right. The, the bigger the bigger infill kind of developments, but also like those little those little moments of like, you know, renewal and, and renegotiation and like pedestrian priority. Um, and that, I guess that's like that's very consistent with this like 15 minute city idea. Right. In the new city plan. And you know, that we might have, have different needs in our neighborhoods that could that could really help them thrive. Yeah, I think of programs like the Storefront program uh, that I'm sure that Strip Mall in Garneau most likely took advantage of uh, that allowed that space to become so much more of what it could be. Uh, I, I don't think I ever really noticed it before. Uh, but now every time I walk or drive past, I'm like, wow, they like did such a fantastic job with that. And I know, I think back to like, when I was in university, a friend of mine, uh, Lucas and I tried to shut down White Ave for uh, Sunday and throw a big block party. <laughs> and they were like, no. <laughs> we were told at the time, there, we were like, poor university kids. And they were like, so we'll need $10,000 to shut down the street and pay for uh, police services and rerouting the buses. And they're like, so are you really committed to that? And I'm like, I eat like $3 pizza on the weekend. I do not have $10,000. <laughs> yeah, so I think we need to empower the community to be able to like make it people's spaces because walking around downtown in the summertime to all the different farmers markets along the river valley has just been like a saving grace in covid we don't have that unless we have people who feel empowered to make those changes happen even the funicular dialogue was the designer of that right yeah like it gets so much people so many people out there 
And when that project started, like, like initially with that project, it was really just supposed to like, just be a funicular, like just be an elevator. And, and I think like the, the team was able to kind of push the, push the boundaries of the project to the point where it was actually like, it's a place now. Right. Like, so like, it, it, and by pulling the, the elevator down away from the funicular up, like there's like, there's a space where like you can go and really experience the city. And I, I think that's one of the, yeah, one of those little found moments, right? Like those little found opportunities. It's really funny because that one, uh, sorry, Mariah, the, uh, some former councillors were not very big fans of it. Uh, some people still probably aren't a big fan of it, but there's always people there, always. People that are either using the elevators to and the funicular for like its actual purpose, which is to get from the river valley and the biking trails there up into downtown. But lots of people just uh, adding to their reels and Instagram stories too. So I, I love the space for, uh, for creating community out there. Well, and, you know, you, you hear from accessibility advocates who were like, hey, thanks, like for finally thinking about how I get between downtown and the River Valley. Right. And like, like, you know, that, that it, it opens it opens up the the access to just, like just to a broader range of people. And, you know, j- just selfishly, it's it's on my commute. It's on my bike commute uh, downtown to work. So I um, and I, like I'm a pretty lazy cyclist and so that the problem I keep having is I kind of like ride Mill Creek Ravine down the hill and then I take the funicular up and then my bike will sit at work for like three days because I don't want to ride back up the up the, the ravine on my way home <laughs> or like yeah my husband will ride my bike home or something like that because <laughs> I'll just be like can you like yeah but it like it makes a really it ma- makes a nice difference right like it, it makes my bike commute possible and I wouldn't I wouldn't honestly do it if I had to bike uphill both ways right yeah, yesterday I was listening to um, this really great webinar through ULI about what makes a, a space a place. Uh, and it was talking about these little community spaces uh, like the funicular. Um, and they had this like list of ingredients of like pedestrian scale lighting and benches and incorporating like higher levels of design in it, uh, thinking about accessibility and is there anything you feel like maybe I'm missing off that list that makes? Yeah, I mean, like the, the, the only thing I would add is like actually urban context, right? Because like you can, we've all seen examples of like, yeah, you put the street light and you put the bench uh, and like nobody goes there because like there's nothing else around, right? Like it, so it, it's it's about, I, I think it's about its connectivity also to the to the context, right? Like my favorite is the, like those benches on 109th Street in front of the parkade that are just like facing out to the street. And they're just like, you know, and I, and I sit on Edmonton Design Committee also. So I'm, I'm really conscious of like, when are we asking people to do some of these urban design things just like to check a box? And when do they actually, when do they actually make sense, right? Because I, you know, you, like that one felt like someone's like, well, you better add some benches and it's like, okay, great. But like, is, is any human really going to sit on that bench and like watch the high speed traffic go by on like a gritty April day, you know, like it's just kind of, yeah, it's, it's unlikely. Right. So I, I think, yeah, for me that like, it, it has to, it has to be appropriate in the context of, of the, the whole urban environment around. Um, yeah. I can promise you as the person who lives literally right next door to those benches, I, in five years, I've never seen anyone sit on them, but the benches in the Railtown Park always being used. Right, yeah. Yeah. But it's just like where they're placed, do they feel comfortable and safe, not next to all the sand and the traffic. Totally. <laughs> and like the benches on 109 are higher quality than what's in uh, Railtown. Yeah, it's not about the bench. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I was going to say in Railtown, like those benches, I don't think are even like they're in kind of weird spots that are not accessible in the winter. And some of them are just exposed and not in not under like a tree or anything. Um, but yeah, they're always there's always people sitting on them or using them. I love it. So, Ty, before we wrap, I wanted to ask you one question. Is there any project you're working on right now that you're just like so in love with that needs needs to be on everyone's radar? Well, yeah, and I, I'm hopeful that um, I'm hopeful this one is going to be able to move ahead. But I, I've been working with the Right at Home Housing Society uh, on a, 
project actually in my in my own neighborhood of King Edward Park, um, where uh, the St. Paul's Lutheran Church um, has basically given the the building and land to to right at home to be able to build some affordable housing and to turn the existing church into a community center, uh, which I'm I'm personally very excited about. Like it's it's an awesome neighborhood because they host. Um, Every year they, they host uh, this uh, something called the Edmonton's Littlest Folk Fest. And it's really just like a number of families from the neighborhood, like set up a stage and uh, have have concerts and like a potluck kind of um, kind of event. And it's free and like there's families out and a little kids dance floor and it like it's just beautiful. Um, it's like such a great neighborhood to live in. Um, and so, yeah, we've been working on uh, adding some townhousing uh some you know family sized and then some you know some townhousing for singles and um, and then also a couple of barrier free accessible units uh, to this project. Um, but yeah, I've been complaining about construction cost escalation. It's such a thing right now, and you know what we're actually seeing is a lot of clients that are dependent on granting for uh, for financing projects, uh, affordable housing, and so on. Um, you know, maybe a year ago, they got a they got a cost estimate and then applied for a grant and, you know, and are now, you know, have a grant to build like 11 units of housing. And, and now we're getting numbers back and they're like, well, we can't build 11 units for, for that cost anymore because it's just been it's been really, really wild. So we're, we're looking at and that's a good one also with the, the uh, hydrant <laughs> hydrant issues as well. So so a few hurdles to overcome, but I'm you know, I, I'm really hopeful we, we can do it because it would just be such a such a great ad like to my own neighborhood. And yeah, I, I think just just allowing the neighborhood to be that, that much more welcoming to different groups and different families and and again like to find a really good use for a building that's sitting largely unused and unloved right yeah i'm I'm pretty stoked about that one so i'm hopeful we can overcome some of the challenges if it makes you feel hopeful at all, there is funding in the Hydrant cost share program. And because 80% of projects don't need funding because of the IFPA process that we talked about in our last episode, the ones who do need it are way more likely to get it. So fingers crossed that doesn't end up being a barrier for you and, and uh, the community. <laughs> fingers crossed, right? It would be it would be such a good one. Yeah, oh, that would be such a great space. Uh, if it goes forward, let me know. I want to come check it out. For sure. <laughs> yeah, I would be so down for a tour. We could put it on our infill tour now that everything's safer and we can bring that back finally. Oh, I hope so, right? That, that's been missed. Yeah. So the last thing we do before I let you go, and I know how crazy busy you are on a Friday, is a call to action to all of our listeners. Is there something that you'd like to say to them before uh, we all sail off into the sunset? Oh, yeah, so much. I mean, I... I think, you know, I was thinking about this, I I think my biggest call to action um, for anyone involved in development or or design is is really just to to think about uh, who is your project impacting, who's the community of your project, um, who is maybe not at the table and doesn't have a voice and see if you can extend extend the circle of your design process to, to include uh, include someone who maybe wasn't included and and then really listen right really listen to what what they can add to the project um, not just in the you know in the perfunctory way we often go through uh, public engagement and community engagement is just to get the rubber stamp but but really to listen and see like like what what could a different perspective who might be impacted by this project add to to make it better yeah, I think that's so beautiful. I have never met a person where they didn't have something useful to say and didn't have a lived experience that I didn't have. It's just like the 109 benches co- comment. You thought that they wouldn't be useful, and I'm here to tell you from my lived experience, they are not useful. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking uh, your time to spend with me and Ryan today. Uh, we really, really appreciated it. Oh, it's been a lot of fun to, to chat with you guys. I could I could do it all day, but <laughs> we'll go do other things. okay bye okay thanks guys thanks Ty well wasn't that super interesting Ty had literally a thousand different facts that I loved and every time I talk to her I feel like I learn new things or find out a new book or a new uh, like podcast to listen to or something she is just like a wealth of knowledge yeah that's why she's top 40 under 40 absolutely 
Yeah, she's very, very impressive. Um, so do you remember the first time you met Ty? No, I don't. I think that's the first time I've actually sat in a room with Ty. I've talked to her on the phone before, but uh, the company I used to work for, we worked with her old firm, New Studio, quite a bit, but I worked with her partner, Tyler, uh, a lot more, as well as her staff. Um, I loved working with them. They had this office in like a loft space in downtown. So it was like this residential space that they converted into like their office. It was awesome. Super, super comfortable and homey. Um, really excited to hear that all of their staff are still on a dialogue. They weren't, you know, merged and bought out or move on or anything. I think that's that's kind of unheard of and that they would all kind of stick on to this level. But yeah, I used to love working with New Studio. But uh, yeah, that was like the first time I've ever sat down face to face with Ty for sure. What about you? Ty, uh, so Ty and I met about four months after I started with Idea. Uh, it was probably the craziest time in her life. Uh, New Studio was merging with Dialogue and she was just having, I believe her second, yeah, her second kid at the time. Uh, so she was literally in the middle of mat leave <laughs> and I waltzed into idea and I was so excited to meet her and it took a few months, but definitely well worth the wait. And she was fantastic to work for. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. The first time I met her partner, Tyler, was right after their first child was born. And um, yeah, that was a long time ago now. It seems so crazy to even think back to that time. Yeah, I, uh, both of them are so fantastic. Tyler still sits on Ideas Policy Committee, uh, so I get to talk with him quite often. Uh, we were looking at design regulations for RA7 and RA8 back in the day, and the city was looking at making sure that all the building facades on all four sides weren't allowed to look the same. And we were like, there are tons of great buildings that look the same on all four sides. Uh, and so him and I coined the term sameness. And then we went and took that to council and were able to change the regulation on the fly, which was nice. That is awesome. That's an awesome little anecdote. Yeah, they're a power couple. I, I love working with them. Yeah. For sure. I mentioned that Ty uh, is a wealth of knowledge. She mentioned a book in this episode. It's called A New Reality. It was written in 1981 by Jones and Jonathan Salk. Uh, if anyone wants to read it out there, it's very interesting. And it talks about the uh, evolving to a sustainable future and changing mindsets. Isn't that crazy? A book from like 30, 40 years ago now is talking about how to get to a sustainable future. And now we're in a crisis. <laughs> so clearly wow. we didn't read it. Nobody read that book, obviously. Yeah. Um, Ty talks about a few things in the episode too um, that I had to look up. The one was the stat about roadways per capita. She wasn't quite sure what the stat was. Um, so I looked it up and I didn't find great information, but every year the city does publish kind of an inventory list of all the inventory they have and uh, kind of the state and the condition and the replacement value of that. So I found one from 2020. So in 2020, the city had about just over 67,000 kilometers of roadways. And this includes, you know, uh, arterials, collectors, alleys, service roads, all the types of roads that are out there. So 67,000 kilometers of roads in 2020, Edmonton had about 1.05 million people. So that works out to about 60 meters of roadway per person in Edmonton. Mariah, what do you do with your 60 meters of roadway? I take a nap on it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it'd kind of be cool if we had like, uh, you know, the highway cleanup where you can like adopt a highway. Um, <laughs> if like every Edmontonian was actually like, this is your 60 meter section of roadway and do with it as you please. I think it'd be cool to see like, you know, branded street lights and uh, street furniture. And I would paint my road. Oh yeah, I was just going to say the asphalt maybe is a different color. Maybe the the lines that are painted on there are a different color. I think that'll have to meet some sort of standard, but <laughs> I think it'd be cool if you gave everybody a little bit of freedom to play with their 60 meters. We should do that with sidewalks. <laughs> we should do that with sidewalks. We absolutely should do that with sidewalks. And then the last thing about this is it doesn't include things like bridges and that stat, the total number, the total length of roadway there, that's only uh, that's like a, a linear distance. So it doesn't include like multiple lane roads. So it's not an overall area. It's like, you know, one road 
at this length. So if you like factor in how many lanes and everything there is, I think it gets a little bit crazy there too. But yeah, yeah, we need a lot of paint out there. So another thing that uh, Ty talked about, she says that roadways get repaved every eight years. I couldn't find anything that that stated that they needed to get repaved every eight years or that they do. But I feel like it's more than that on some major roadways, you know, like 99th Street or Jasper Avenue. I feel like 109th Street, I feel like some of these get repaved or resurfaced almost every year. You live in kind of the hotbed of road repaving in your area, hey? Yeah, downtown has work going on all the time, which I'm very grateful for. And then my parents and my uh, parents-in-law both live on the south side. So I am going up and down Gateway, Calgary Trail, and 99th all the time. And right now I am just like, dodging potholes left right and center so i don't know what the eight year if it's eight years or every two years for those roads uh or what level of repaving they're talking about uh but we do spend a lot of money on roads in edmonton and time absolutely and this doesn't even take into account like filling potholes and doing like band-aid maintenance for sure um that same document i was talking about the infrastructure inventory and replacement value and condition uh, report I found something interesting in there. It talks about the expected lifespan of roadways that we have, and typically it's about 24 years old. What do you think the average the average age of our roadways in Edmonton is right now? Well, if I'm hoping that uh, 99th is repaved every two years, well, maybe 15 years? Yeah, you wish. It's about double that. It's uh, actually more than double that. So the average age of our roadways in 2020, according to this report, is about 39 years old. So it's about 50% older than the expected lifespan of that road. So we're a little behind the eight ball already, (laughs) adding more roadways every single year, which are new, so they don't need repaving for a while for sure. But um, yeah, our infrastructure is aging. Yeah, sounds like we got a problem on our hands. A <laughs> little bit of a problem. I'm sure we'll talk to somebody about roadways on this podcast at some point here, right? Oh, 100%. If that's a stat, we definitely need to talk to someone about roadways. Yeah, we'll go through the top 40, uh, Edmonton top 40 under 40 list and see who's a roadway expert and get them on here. Um, okay, the last thing that we needed to kind of fact check here or define, I should have done this in the introduction, but Urban Green Co-Housing, the project that New Studio and Dialogue put together, or I think it was just Dialogue actually put together. Um, it's a project in Strathcona. It's a 26 unit apartment building. Remember all of our talk about you know, the best number of units and the best scale for uh, getting to know your neighbors. That's what this project is. So it's a Scandinavian, I think it's a Danish concept where individual units have, they're kind of self-contained. So you have kitchens and that kind of thing in your individual units, but they have, they're centered around common spaces. So kitchens, large community eating areas, amenities, gardens. So usually these co-housing developments are focused on sustainability. Urban Green obvious, uh, has sol- is solar ready and has 35% better energy efficiency um, than the minimum requirements in the building code. So they've gone that route as well, but it has a high community focus. So the intent is that everybody has kind of their individual private space, but you spend most of your time in these public spaces. 26 units, they range from one bedroom to three bedroom. They focus on intergenerational housing. They've got kids in there, they've got seniors in there, and they only have two suites left i looked two three bedroom suites is all that's left in the building that is freaking awesome that it just like shows how much people want to be around other people i love that yeah this project took 10 years to get going here i remember when i first moved back to edmonton in like 2014 i was on the newsletter uh, for urban green co-housing i i think it had timing worked out a little bit better i may have purchased a unit in there um obviously i didn't and now they're getting occupancy in september two units left very cool project definitely check it out and i know that they had some fire hydrant issues back in the day what I know. (laughs) It's almost like all missing middle projects have to deal with that. But oh, well, let's move on from that. We talked about that with Cam last episode. (laughs) Okay, before we close out, uh, you and I were talking before the episode, we want to say a huge thank you to Mon. He is our editor, uh, editor in chief for the podcast, and he makes all of this possible. So thank you to Mon, who will have to edit this podcast, (laughs) and will hear us shut him out and is not allowed to cut this part out. No. Thanks, Mon. We, Brian and I, this is long overdue. We should have shouted you out a long time ago. You do great work on the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, but we want to shout out a listener too, don't we? Yeah, 100%. Uh, also, a huge thanks to Jason for listening in, who that last episode was released four days ago and on a Friday night. 
uh, around 8 p.m. was uh, sending me messages about things that he heard about in the episode. So thanks, Jason. Wow. So Porto FC was not playing that night. Uh, I know he's a huge soccer fan and I know Porto is his team. So obviously had nothing better to do on a Friday night uh, than to fact check us. So appreciate that, Jason. Maybe <laughs> we'll get you on the podcast to uh, do it live one time. <laughs> All right, Ryan, I officially have to go eat lunch or breakfast or some combination of both. Enjoy. Have a good, have a good lunch. <laughs> okay. See ya. See ya.